Welcome to the good, the bad, and the sequel Q&A. My name's Doug. So the next sequel that we're going to be covering, we're going back into horror. And this is one I've never seen before, and Jamie hasn't either. So that's always fun when we uh, stumble upon these. It's going to be Blair Witch 2016. It is a direct sequel to the Blair Witch Project. And what's really cool is this week's guest is camera operator, cinematographer, director, Nathan Haugard. That is like a pinnacle movie in his young journey. You know, when he was 12, 13 years old, it came out. He saw it in the movie theater growing up in Vancouver, Washington, him and his buddies. And then from there, they're like, hey, we can do this. My dad's camera's just like this. And then flash forward 17 years later, he's doing camera tests for Blair Witch 2016, which is pretty neat. So we talked about his journey, how... You know, being a kid that didn't skateboard was able to be the kid that could hang out with the skateboarders, his buddies, and film them. So that was like his early, you know, crash course in filmmaking. And then after high school, this is all he wanted to do. He goes down to LA. Somehow, within no time, he's hooked up. He's working at James Cameron Studio. So anything shot in 3D, including the original Avatar, he worked on. He had some great stories about that. Uh, And then from there, he said, you know, I want to get behind the camera. He did some reality TV, Real Housewives. We talked about some of the amazing things that he kept. Uh, You know, one of my favorite questions, as you know, is asking people mementos that he kept from set. He has some really neat ones. One is somebody's Christmas cards that he gets, which is really cool. And we talked about the short films that he shoots with his friends, sometimes directing, sometimes cinematography. And he couldn't say what company it was, but I'm sure he'll allude to it on social media when the commercial comes out. But he shot like a really big commercial uh, when he was in Texas for like a hotel, a travel company. So that's pretty neat. And it was in the vein of uh, James Bond, which is something we talked about later in the interview. When I asked people, you know, future projects you want to work on, that was one of his uh, answers, like a Bond-like type movie, which is uh, pretty cool. But uh, yeah, so if you're new here, please subscribe, please like, follow us on all social media at Sequels Only. And without further ado, here is Nathan Haugard. I always like to hear about the beginning. So like Nathan, I, I, I guess before, because you were out in Florida last week, you're from Florida, uh-huh. but you just went there for work and sandwiches. But like, where are you from? <laughs> Uh, I am from Vancouver, Washington, which is not Sweet. Vancouver, British Columbia. I not live Vancouver, in Portland. British- yeah, I lived in what? Portland oh. for a few years. Nice. Then you know, and it's crazy how many people that you talk to, and they'll be like, "Oh, I didn't know you're Canadian." And it's, uh, but no, not Canadian, uh, but Vancouver. But they were clo- they were close, which is kind of confusing. Like when I tell people, "Were you out here?" I'm in Jersey. I fall for the trap of when people are like, oh, yeah, where are you guys from? I'm like, oh, we're from New Jersey, but we lived in Portland for a few years. And like when you say Portland on the East Coast, I think Portland, Maine, which I guess right. that makes sense. A lot closer. That's all Vancouver, you know. Always- Vancouver, what are they, five hours apart, six hours apart? The Vancouver, two Vancouver's? Uh, Vancouver's, yeah, probably about five to six hours if you went like straight on I-5. Yeah, yeah probably that. Yeah. Cool. That's cool. You grew up there, dude. Nice. But yeah, that was a great place to grow up, like, you know, running around making movies in the forest. I grew up with a big forest in my backyard. And so we'd, we'd like play army, you know, just super awesome, young, all-American boy stuff. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and 
Yeah, I, my buddies made skate videos. Okay, and so that, that makes sense. Off, your age, like the four hundred one right. videos, late late nineties, early two thousands. Yes, remember CKY? CKY? Hell yeah! Yep. So we were all into that, and but I wasn't a skateboarder. So then you know, I was sort of like, all right, well, you hold the camera. So it started off like that. Wow. And this is like elementary school, <laughs> and so I was doing that, and then stole my dad's camera. And then we were like, let's start making our own movies. Blair Witch Project came out. Nice. I was like, well, see, those dudes can make, they made a movie with like the same gear we have. So then all of middle school was us trying to make a horror film about this, like the legend in the local forest. And then we wanted to make a Star Wars fan film that kind of got pretty big, you know, like all those, the prequels were coming out. So we were experimenting with, we painted a whole wall in our garage blue. And actually one of my favorite things we did, we wanted to do a speed bike chase sequence. And so uh, we painted the wall blue and then we put a bicycle in front of the wall and shot a profile shot of us on the bicycle going like this. And then for the plate, we took our tripod out to the backyard and we Scooby-Dooed it. So if you ever watch like a chase scene in an old Hanna-Barbera cartoon, it's the same background just over and over and over again. yeah, yeah, yeah. Crouched underneath the tripod, and then we spun the camera really fast, so the camera's just spinning around. And then you got that sense of motion blur. So then that was our background plate for us on the bikes. Um, so yeah, we would just mess around, just doing stuff like that. And um, you know, high school, I totally hijacked my curriculum. I turned every class into a film class. I was nice. always writing screenplays, and. Uh, my whole senior year was like, how do I just make movies all the time? So I like lined up photography classes and then we didn't have a film program. So I wrote a curriculum for a film program and, and we just made movies all the time and came to LA and kept making movies and started getting PA jobs, um, had some really cool PA gigs and yeah. And then like the coolest, it all really came together in 2009, I started working as a camera prep technician for James Cameron. Wow. Okay. Um, his 3D camera company called Pace, Cameron Pace 3D. So that was the first time that I was like face to face with Hollywood. And it was so awesome. And how so, old are you so, at that so point? Old. I'm just trying to ballpark. You're probably pretty young, like 2021. 20, yeah, probably like 22. 23, 24, somewhere in there. Let's see. Who came out to LA with you? Was it solo or did you have like buddies, your buddies? Oh, okay. Buddy. No, it was just, I just, there wasn't anything else that I felt like I was, I had to do this. It was like, go make movies, which is what I'd always done my whole life or what, or like, what am I going to do? Like I wasn't a great academic student. Um, I played music, but I was always, I was the music program at the high school I went to was really, really like an award-winning music program, oh, but I was always kind of the the worst in the group, you know, like I was just good enough to hang, but everyone else went on to be teachers or studio musicians. And I was just like, I just wasn't that good. So I, I was just like, I don't know what else, like I don't love anything else the way I love telling stories. So I just have yeah. to go and figure it out. So I just moved down here and just, yeah, I don't even, there was like my first PA job for some weird reality show to this day. I don't know how they got my phone number. It's so strange. <laughs> like straight up. Like I just don't know 
I remember is Jared Brom is the guy's name who called me. Uh, super cool guy. But yeah, I don't know how. And I think he and I have even spoken about this. Like, how did you get my number? He's like, I have no idea. Um, yeah. <laughs> and then it was just from that point on, it's so weird because you can trace back like every job I've had, you can kind of like trace back to to your very first job in some way. You're just always meeting people and, you know, and then this person introduces you to this person and yada, yada, yada. And, um, and so, yeah, but working at Cameron Pace was, I got to watch... I got to be a part of the prep for Scorsese's Hugo. I uh-huh. prepped Life of Pi, Final Destination Five, uh, oh, wow. Shark Night. I was on set for Cirque du Soleil, Worlds Apart. Um, like I lived in Las Vegas for a couple of months shooting that movie. Um, James Cameron asked me to go on TV with him. We were. I was on uh, Attack of the Show. Do you remember that TV oh, show? Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, like, was it on the E Channel or something? Um, was that no? Wasn't that on? Uh, wasn't it like it's a gaming on. channel? No. Yeah, it's a weird like channel because that. that's where Olivia Munn started. Oh. She was on Attack of the Show, right? Was she on it then? Yeah. That's where she's from. Yes. Okay. And when I got, it just left, so I did not get to see the Munn. <laughs> oh man. <laughs> I know. I know. It's all right. But yeah, uh, so I was on TV, and that was pretty cool. I had friends calling me. It's like, did I just see you on TV with James Cameron? I was like, yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's just a typical uh, Tuesday for me now. Pretty wild. Yeah, that was pretty wild. So all this time, are you still are you still shooting on your own? Obviously, you're working at that, but it's like one of those things. Like even while you're working, like when you're not working, you're still kind of like honing your craft because that's how you get ahead of people. You're playing. No. Yeah, I never really looked at it like getting ahead of people. It was just I, that's what I was hungry to do. Like yeah. if I wasn't it's to this day, if I'm not creating something, I feel there's like an internal guilt, which I've I go to therapy, I work on, I try to get over it because you <laughs> want to just chill sometimes and yeah. just like it's okay to just be. But I, I just have to be creating something. It's um, uh, my friend Nanea calls it a blessed unrest, and it's just this like there's this thing inside you. You're just like I just gotta be creating and yeah so so yeah so yes there's always like a day job and that can even be now as like a, a director of cinematography you're like cool that sounds like a great gig i'll go do that gig but you're kind of always angling like what's the what am i going to do for me on this thing and then what will this afford me the ability to do for me you know like after this thing so yeah so you mentioned before I cut you off before X Games. So you're shooting everything. You're shooting sports. Yeah, we did too? everything. Well, all things 3D. So this was like 3D was uh, booming. So this yeah, the yeah. wake of the first Avatar. Then now it's this, and this is they hadn't really figured out post conversion stereo yet. They were developing the software to do that, but still the the purest philosophy was if you want a film in stereo, you should shoot it natively in stereo, which means two cameras. And you either are going to do a side-by-side rig, so the two lenses or the two cameras and the whole lens and everything is right here. But the problem is, is that with, and this we would have had, they were just phasing out two-thirds inch cameras. So that would have been the Sony F23. And so it's actually F23 for a two-thirds inch chip. And those were pretty good cameras. I'm trying to think. I think um, I think Speed Racer. Don't tot- take this with a grain of salt. <laughs> But I think Speed Racer was shot on the F23. Um, so that was a pretty cool camera. 
But then when you moved up to a Super 35 sized sensor, now everything is bigger. So your the front element on your lens is bigger. And so you can only get your lenses so close. And so actually what James Cameron was experimenting with was can we shave down the lenses so that you have a flat edge so that these lenses can get close because the lenses up front are the are, the entry point for light coming in is such that then by the time you get all the way back to where the sensors are, the sensors are pretty far apart. But for good stereo, you want the sensors to kind of be as far apart as your eyes. Because then when you watch something back in 3D, if the sensors are wider than your eyes, it can kind of make you like feel sick to your stomach. So the game you're always trying to play is how do we get those camera sensors to be the same interocular distance is what we call the same distance between your pupils. So then to combat this issue of like you couldn't have two cameras physically get close enough to do this, then they built what's called a beam splitter rig. So now you have one camera inverted shooting into a mirror at 45 degrees, and then the other camera is shooting through the mirror. So it's a two-way mirror. Oh, my God. So one camera shooting through this mirror at 45 degrees, and then the other one up top shooting down into it and actually filming the reflection of an image on that mirror. So just this piece of mirror is like $8,000 for a mirror. And then the whole rig is just like crazy looking. Um, And so they did like beam splitter rigs. That was Tron Legacy, Pirates of the Caribbean 4, uh, Scorsese's Hugo Cabret, Life of Pi. All of those films uh, were predominantly like your A camera is a beam splitter camera. Because what that allows you to do then, because you're not physically getting your cameras close together, you're shooting. So you can actually calibrate them so the cameras are both shooting the same image. So your interocular distance can become zero. And then that gives you the ability to slowly dial up your interocular distance. And the greater that distance, that separation, the greater the 3D effect. So James Cameron will always talk about, he's like, what's your 3D budget? He's like, if you really want to have a good 3D experience, you have a 3D budget. So then you're constantly, that's like the artistic choice of like, well, how 3D should we make this shot? And so his philosophy is kind of keep it paired back. Don't go like full blown out 3D all the time. Kind of keep it really calm. And then for those big set pieces, then maybe you really kind of introduce, you increase the interocular distance. You really increase the 3D-ness of the shot. So it was a trip to like learn all of this as a young person. You're just going like, it was like being in college, you know, and being at school. It was really cool. Yeah, no, that's cool. That's the best way to learning on the job is, you know, you're at a school for four years. Like, you know, you're, right. you're going for a career, but you're never really actually in the shoes of what you want to do, especially to learn, you know, at a place like that with, with James Cameron. That's crazy yeah. that, that the camera rig. So is that why like, cause you're right. That was like that first spell of 3d. Yes. Like that was like the bit. Well, be, besides the eighties, 3d, right. That they had the eighties phase of 3d. Did you ever go to Disney and see captain EO? No, I haven't. Okay, it's a shame. I don't think it's there anymore. So Captain EO was a 3D music video, like Purple Rain. It was like a 20-minute experience with Michael Jackson as the star. Oh, wow. But it's directed by Francis Ford Coppola and shot by Vittorio Storaro, who shot Apocalypse Now. (laughs) And they shot it in native stereo, 70-millimeter IMAX. So they had two IMAX cameras shooting side by side. 
But the, the thing was, is it's, it's friggin' IMAX cameras shooting side by side. So that film experience can be a really disorienting one because, again, the interocular distance was so great. There's a fly flying around me. The interocular distance is so great that people kind of had a hard time getting on board with it. So it was, it was good that it was only like a 15, 20-minute experience because you're, you're sitting there and you're going like, whoa, like this is pretty intense. But like, no, for real though, like crazy technology, like IMAX cameras. Like this is like Nolan's wet dream, you know, like we're going to do <laughs> one 70 millimeter camera but two you know like it's crazy <laughs> but yeah for a long time that was at disneyland um captain eo if you ever get a chance to see captain eo in 3d it's it's wild it's really cool yeah i'll so. check it out we have family out in la we've been to orlando but we haven't gotten yeah. to disneyland yet with the kids that might be the next uh trip when we're out there but no that's pretty wild because you're, you're right it's so funny with like 3d there's the phases they have the 80s like the friday the 13th yeah. In the horror 3ds yep. and then that era that you're talking about and then because remember 3d tvs were huge for like a like there was like this small window i feel like it was a year i was just like oh 3d tv it's where it's at they would like have comcast yeah. by us would have like a free, free 3d channel then it just like fizzled out yeah it's expensive the glasses are uncomfortable because the 3d tvs had active glasses and so your the glasses have to shutter sync and so they're uh, okay. flickering between different. So the TV uses its refresh rate to show you two images so fast that you can't really see. And then the glasses sync up so that one eye is operating at the right eye shutter refresh rate. And then the left eye is flickering at the left eye shutter rate. So you're only seeing one image, you know, per coming from the TV. It's a whole thing. Yeah. And <laughs> Sounds like it. So, yeah, no, people weren't stoked on that. And then just, you know, Stereo production of a film is expensive because it's twice as many cameras, right? You know, because like every camera rig is actually two cameras. So if you think about the traditional budget of a Hollywood movie, now you're doubling it. Yeah. And so they started to get really good at um, what's called post-conversion. So you shoot your film in mono on set, and then they would do a few different tricks. Like they could shoot plates. Are you familiar with like what plates are? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you shoot plates. And so then that way, because the reason you need to shoot a plate is because, you know, you have to understand what's behind the thing that you're going to set your convergence point on. So your convergence point is these two cameras are going to intersect. Your fields of view are going to intersect at a point. And that point of intersection is called your convergence point. And your convergence point is the screen. So anything that happens in front of that conversion point, convergence point is popping out of the screen at you. And anything that happens behind it is depth. And so you have to understand, okay, well, like, well, this eye is going to kind of see, my right eye is going to see around to the right a little bit. So then you'd shoot a plate so that you can, when you manufacture this frame to lock in that convergence point, you can kind of know like what's there, like what's around the thing. So they just kept experimenting with different ways to do this. And now, I mean, the software is beyond like, I, it just blows my mind what people can do. So. Yeah. And then like star Wars tried to cash in on that when they redid the, when they re put the movies out in like the 2012 and they weren't even doing like actual like 3d. It was more like just pulling things forward. So like when you're watching with the glasses on, like things just look closer, like nothing really moved too closer. Jurassic park was, I think the one of the best that did it. The, the original Jurassic Park they re-put in the movie theater 
It was like pretty good. I missed that. I didn't. I didn't see that. The Raptors the original- jumping through the ceiling looked like they were coming out of the screen. It was really good. Yeah, there's so many cool things that come and go with the theaters that you're always a little bit bummed. Like, I just wanted to go see Return of the Jedi in the theater, period, this uh, past yeah. day. Um, and yeah, I just, I missed it. I wasn't able to go, but this is great getting to go back. If you, some of those classics, if you haven't seen them on a big screen, it's so awesome when they bring those back. Yeah. You know, check them out. In the it's 90s, different. when you were young, like just before the prequels came out, I don't know if you mm-hmm. were too young then, but when they, they redid all those movies to like set up the prequels. I think it was 96, 97, 98. They did yeah. the original three films and it was still pretty cool. Like my dad saw Amazing. them 20 years prior. So it was pretty neat. Yeah. So, yeah. so back to you, Nathan. So like from there you're working with Cameron and then what mm-hmm. was like the job? Because obviously you were shooting movies as a kid. So it wasn't like you're mm-hmm. just a camera operator. You had this vision for like the full Mm-hmm. like directing and doing all that. So like from there, what was like the first, like, cause there's a lot of things on IMDb. I know some aren't like correct, but there's like things you're working on first credit. And this might be when you first got out to LA seventh and Hill still photographer yeah. for like a short film. Was that out in LA or still back home? No, that was here. That was cool. here. Um, I met this super cool guy, Ryan Postis. Um, he's, he's just, doing awesome stuff. Um, if you look up Ryan, he's always been a really cool visionary and he and I hit it off and he gave me a chance to come and just help him make this film. They shot that on 35 millimeter. We shot down in the diamond district in downtown LA. That was just a super cool experience, but yeah, I did like some production design stuff. Like I was helping set up shots and just help. It was like, I was just kind of like hanging out, like helping any way I could. It was cool to be a part. I think we had to do reshoots. And my buddy Anthony uh, Rigo flew down from Vancouver, Washington. We had made movies together in high school. I was like, dude, come help me make this movie with these cool dudes. And so he came down. and uh, Yeah, that was just a really fun experience. But yeah, that was a long time ago. Was that 2007? That's what it has on here. But it's like, it's all about just being on a set. Even like, yeah. you know, even if you get, obviously getting paid is great. But it's like the experience is like a huge factor too. So what would you say the first time, obviously like working with Cameron going on attack of the show, like being involved Mm -hmm. in so many like huge projects, but was there Mm -hmm. something like individually, like another thing you did after that? Cause there's like somehow you're working on real housewives or like a Bieber music video. Well, Bieber was because it was three part of that. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) So that was all. Yeah. Yeah, It's, it's, it's varied. Right. Um, Yeah comes from just saying like yes and just being excited like so i'm kind of always just so bieber was i was a 3d camera assistant for that so i was pulling convergence so you have someone pulling focus and then someone pulling convergence um so that's what i did on bieber and that was at madison square garden new york that was cool and then housewives was i want to operate a camera like i don't want to be a career assistant i want to shoot and it's like well if you want to shoot a movie good luck doing that before you're 50 years old. I was like, got it. <laughs> and you know, I was like, I've been, you know, I was like, maybe I had a little bit of a chip on my shoulder. Cause I was like, I don't know if I really want to do, I don't want to pull focus for the rest of my life. I want to yeah. be more, you know, so I was like, yeah, maybe movies aren't right for you. Maybe you should go to TV. And it was really easy to become an operator in reality TV. So I went and did that. And I learned a lot about lighting, especially beauty lighting. Those women, 
I forgot who are the DP for the first season that I worked on of Orange County or Beverly Hills, some really solid, solid cinematographers. But they handed us as camera operators this lighting diagram. It was like, this is the look of the interview. And man, for just like a lock off sit down interview, I think we would use like 37 lights. Wow. I mean, it was just really wild, really, really, really wild. But I learned so much about beauty lighting and eye lighting and hair, like, like clamshell lighting, like all these old school techniques to light up these women. And so that was really cool. And then I got to travel with, with reality TV and meet some phenomenally talented people, work on some really cool shows and, um, and just shoot, you know, just practice because it's storytelling too. Like that's the cool thing about reality TV is you don't get a take two. So you really develop an ear to listen for story in the moment. You can't kind of zone out and you're just sort of like holding a shot and like, huh, you know, is it in focus? Yes. Okay, great. When do I go? <laughs> you know, she's talking about if you're shooting a, a reality scene, she's talking about so-and-so over there. And in the back of your mind, you're kind of going like, oh, well, where are they at? And then I'm going to have to go over here. And then sometimes you'll be filming a scene with two or three people and you're by yourself. So then you have to make choices in the moment of, okay, I've been filming Doug talk for a minute, but Doug's talking to Nathan. So we're going to have to pan over Nathan to get like a cutaway shot. But when's a good time to do that? So you're listening to what he's been saying. You know, it's like you're making all these editorial choices on the fly. And so it's, it's a great education. I had a lot of fun doing it. Yeah, no. And you're like, like you said, you're operating a camera and it's so terrible. So did you really feel that when somebody said that to you? Like, if you want to work on a movie, like you're going to have to be 50. Was that something like. Oh, yeah. Ser- like you felt like that was serious you, because obviously you changed oh. that, right? You're not 50. Um, no, but I also, you know, I have peers that played the game and they are they went the traditional route and now they're doing you know i don't know i mean like we're all doing cool stuff but um uh like what's nick's last name there's a couple of camera operators that um a buddy of mine was the steady cam operator for the last series the last season two seasons of stranger things oh, so okay, he's doing cool. well and then uh, the camera PA on Transformers 3, I think it was, he's now like Nolan's Steadicam operator. Oh, wow. So there were guys that were just like nose to the grindstone and they stuck it out, you know, and they did like 15 years um, and then they got their shot. And so, you know, that's there. But I, I do like I do like being a director of photography because I get to influence the storytelling more. And I think on a big film, not to say that Steadicam operators don't influence story, they absolutely do, um, unquestionably. Um, and on really big movies, I mean, like sometimes the camera operator talks more to the director than the cinematographer even does. Um, I've got friends who have told me crazy stories about working on huge, huge, huge movies where that's the case. <laughs> but... What I love about being a director of photography is, you know, being the sort of like, you know, I mean, to put it plainly, like you're the lens through which the story passes, you know? So it's like really finding that point of view and walking into a moment going like, we have the power to convey anything. 
So what are we trying to convey? And there's, there's the words and how do I turn the words into an image? And that's the most exciting thing for me. And so that's why I love being a cinematographer. And so I just kept pursuing that. Yeah. And, um, yeah. And I just love it. How long did you, uh, how early on, so you've done steady can operating? Well, not, uh, no, I would never call myself a steady cam operator. I bought, it was called a glide cam and I had a glide cam back in like 2000, 2011, 2012, but that was like super rinky dink. It was, <laughs> it had like the vest and a little arm, but you know, this is before there was like wireless focus was widely available. So I put a 5d Mark II on a glide cam and you would set a focus point you know, and just kind of rock it. And just, if you had to do like a close up of someone, you had to hold that distance to keep them in focus, you know, like, if, cause if <laughs> yeah. you distance or they go to focus. So, um, but it was enough to, to know when I talk to my steady cam operators, I know what I'm asking them to do. Um, you know, like I don't ask them unreasonable requests you know, like, Oh, you can't, well, why can't you, why can't you just, and they're like, dude, like, cause we can't. Right. Um, so that's the cool thing about, you know, kind of tiptoeing into someone else's job just to know enough to know how to have a good convert, a creative conversation about what's possible. And they respect but, that too. If you're asking like the right questions about like what they're I using so. and how to, I, I talked to this guy, Charles, Charles Papert. Does that name ring a bell at all? He was like aesthetic. He, uh, he's worked on like a bunch of cool stuff and he became like from his steady cam operating days. He ended up being like the cinematographer, a lot of like comedy central shows. Like he worked on, key and peel for the whole series run he just they somebody f liked the way he did it so he went from that show to another comedy but he was like a steady cam operator and then he was like teaching classes for it mm -hmm. but he wasn't able to get on sets like he was teaching the camera mm -hmm. operator operators in hollywood but it was still that thing because he was pretty young it was like, all right well thanks for teaching us and then he finally broke through i think his first movie that he did that four was either I think it was major league three, which I interviewed him for, or it was uh God, the one with Ed Norton and uh, with the white supremacy. I should know off the top of my head, but history X. Yeah. American history X. Yeah. That was one of his, uh, yeah, he worked on that. That was one of his first movies. Wow. That's, that's a pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Pretty wild. Yeah. yeah, his real, I forgot what his real was, but he said the guy who hired him wasn't even paying attention when he put the tape in and was like reading a newspaper. And then when the tape stopped, he says, okay, you got the job. But that's how yeah. Hollywood is, right? <laughs> that's all it takes, you know, it's like, and you can't question it, right? You just yeah. like, it's just, <laughs> I was meant to be here. It was always meant to be, you know, <laughs> go with it. So I know IMDb is not a hundred percent, but I always think it's pretty cool if this is right, just because what you said earlier, did you work on Blair Witch in 2016? Yeah. I worked on the camera tests. Dude, that see, <laughs> that's the full circle. So you're with your yeah. buddies in 99. And yeah. I remember like before the internet, when I saw that in movie theater, it was like, even yeah. though I think it was in seventh grade, I still, I can't believe how dumb I was, but I'm like, this is real, dude. Like, I remember it felt so real. Yeah. The end of that movie still freaks me out. Oh, <laughs> oh dude. 
because it felt real like the the way it was filmed like you said like you you know as a kid you can have access to your dad's equipment and this is like what they shot it with but it felt so real like when you're watching the movie and the one guy's going nuts like you know what i threw the map in the river river like he's like going crazy but when you see the him standing in the corner it's like it's i don't know it's just still good yeah i think so i like it and then you have to work on that which is cool like 2016 17 18 years later yeah it's a trip well there was dude this past christmas was wild um i went home um back to portland for christmas and i wanted to watch avatar the way of water in the same theater that i watched the first avatar in so i went with um my girlfriend and her family and and that was a wild experience man this is like i remember going to that theater and seeing avatar in 3d and that was in what 2007 also 2006 so i would have been like i would have flown home from la for the holidays probably and it's like wow this is a trip <laughs> yes yeah. this, this is wild. and then what is that is that 16 years later 15 years later that i'm watching yeah. the sequel and my name is in the end credits it's like, yeah wild wild yeah it's cool yeah very cool it's like this full circle moments you think about all right why you got inspired to do anything or person that you inspired him and then you meet them you know obviously i'm sure growing up like james cameron like how many movies that you know you know and it's like you're talking to him and getting advice from him and learning from him so just that in itself is pretty wild yeah that every every day on set on way of water was just sort of like what is happening right now like this (laughs) is just so it was just such a trip um yeah, man, such a trip. You just be sitting there looking around and you're like, what is even it didn't feel real, Doug. Like it really didn't feel there was there's this weird, unexplainable part of me that was like, oh, this is this thing that's happening that no one would ever believe, and it's probably not real. And there there will never be because it's so monumental, also. You know, because like I was working on Wave Water in 2017. Yeah, which and is it came insane. out. Yeah. Yeah, it came out in 2022. You know, it's like no one's ever going to see this movie. It's not real. It's not a real thing. Like, there's no way that this is like the Avatar. It's just, it's just a trip. You're like, I'm here, and then it comes out. You're like, wow, yeah. wow, so wild. So, so it's, so it's wild. wild because a movie was planned to take that long. That's like the wildest yeah. part. Because other movies, it's like, like I was watching the interview like two months ago. Jamie Fox actually filmed a movie with Robert oh, yeah. Downey Jr. Yeah, this is very famous. Yeah. yeah, and it and he's like, oh, he's never gonna put the movie out. Jamie Foxx will yeah, never put the movie out because I think in the movie, I think Robert Downey plays like a Mexican or something, like something yeah. crazy. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. but yeah, that happens. Like movies get shelved forever. Like Batgirl. Like it's really crazy to think about. Movies get all this money spent in them. It's like, yeah, it's okay. Yeah, yeah that's wild. I had a, a, my gaffer. Um, worked on an Apple commercial that was directed by um, Inuritu. It was directed by Inuritu, shot by Lebeski, by Chivo. So did this like huge Apple commercial back in the day. Never released it. Yeah. Apple was like, nah. You know, like they spent like millions on this commercial. And I was like, 
But with Avatar, we wait. That was like the plan. It's going to take this long. I mean, I'm sure COVID well, probably put a hiccup on it. Yeah, the COVID put a hiccup on it, and then you know, I think the plan was always. I mean, just you know, I'm not so. I like I don't know Jim so well that I'm like I'm on the inside. But you know, I know that it's it's going to be done when it's done. You know, and it's like it can't take forever, but also it can't be not done. You know, so it's like, how much money can we throw at it? Um, you know, he has so many superpowers. Uh, both him and John Lando have, and then also Richie Bainham, who won the Academy Award for for visual effects. Those guys have such an awesome, uh, you know, like combined superpower to know the most economical way to wield that much money because it's the most expensive movie ever made. So you're not just throwing money blindly at problems; you're doing things really economically to accomplish something that's a never been done before and B we're going to get it done. You know, yeah. like we're going to finish it. It's going to look amazing. And uh, gosh, it's just so awesome, you know, to watch people at the top of their game, just crushing it. It's just incredible. And what's cool is when you go back, because I interviewed somebody that was on in Piranha Two, James Sick. very early movie. And he only, <laughs> I think he ended up only directing, I think like 75% of it. Cause, but it's funny mm-hmm. when you go back and watch these movies, even if you go back and watch, I wouldn't even say like the first, uh, the Hills of Eyes, like uh, mm-hmm. the sequel. And you're like, you're seeing these guys, Wes Craven, Young, Cameron Young. And you just see like, it's like, you know, Piranha 2, the piranhas are flying at people. They're hiding cadaver, like craziest shit off the wall. But it's like, it looks really good. You felt like you were watching Jaws. Like that's how well done the movie was shot so you're like oh this yeah. guy can get you know he's gonna obviously be something and then everything took off like the next year i think or two years later so well it's, I, I was having this conversation with a, another director friend of mine and i think the most important thing to have when we make because i shoot you know like i shoot low budget movies with my friends and it's the best yeah. you know we have the time because we're, we're doing our own thing you know it's like i don't care how the movie's received or who watches it. Like we're having fun. Like we're making movies, but what's the difference between a bad movie and a good, bad movie. And I think it's perspective. And I think it's, you know, no one tries to make a bad movie, but if you go in with a strong point of view and a strong perspective and a love for cinema, you can't help but make a pretty good movie. So I think that that's, what's apparent when you watch, you know, filmmakers that we think are great and you look at their early work and you go like, yeah, there's a strong point of view here. You know, like they see it and then you just, you just unequivocally pursue what you see in your head. Yeah. You know, people go like, and you can't sit around and filmmaking by committee never works. It just doesn't work. People wonder, it's like, how come I don't like, you know, like all these shows or how come I don't like all these movies? It's like, cause like 30 people told the director what to do. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's like he didn't get to just show up and he's like, this is what we're doing and piss off. It's like, no, he had to say, okay, well, all right, you know, so-and-so wants this scene. And okay, we'll do that way for them. And then so-and-so, then they want, and it's like, eh, blah, 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 blah. and you know, and again, like I've, I know people and I've heard stories about filmmakers that are working at a high level and they're super burned out. You know, it's like if friends of friends have worked on big films that we don't need to name names, but it's yeah, like, yeah. 
they're like, oh, you want to know why that movie sucked? I was in the room, dude, and I saw that person having to answer to the executives, and the executives are just like, I think it should be more green. Can we make it more green? <laughs> yeah. And they go back to their phone, and you're like, what? Yeah. You know, it's like, you just make it more green. I don't, I don't care. Fine, you know. And it's not their movie anymore, you yeah. know. And that happens all the time. TV is bad with that. I've talked to some TV directors, and they've said, like, a, a, they don't want to say too much, but it is hard on some shows because it's not like you're going to go in and for the viewer when they're watching CSI Miami, you know, this week, next week's got to look the same. So you're going yeah. in there and you're pretty much trying to copy yeah. what was done the week before or the week before that and the week before that. And I don't know. It's weird because you're watching all these shows and you're like, oh man, I feel like I'm watching this, but it's a different director for the most part every yeah. week. Like it's crazy. Well, I know. I just like um, Russell Carpenter who shot way of water. Uh, he was just on uh, Deacon's podcast and he was talking about getting fired off of like one of those procedurals because the director came in for the next week with all these great ideas. And he was like, I love this. Yeah, let's do that. So he starts doing all this stuff and the studio comes out and like, what are you doing? <laughs> I was like, oh, my job is to tell the director, no, you can't do that because we have – man, he's like, I don't want to play this game. So, you know, it didn't, it didn't work out. But, yeah, you're totally right. No, it yeah. stinks. But but I guess it stinks for the director, but for the audience, I guess some people wouldn't be like, yeah, this looks totally different this week. But it would be kind of fun. Yeah. Like, I don't know if you watch After Party on Apple. That's like mm. a fun thing they did. It's mostly comedians uh, in it. But what they do is there's like a murderer – but what they did the first season, I haven't watched the second season yet. The first season, each episode was shot different. So like right. Jake, Bar uh, Jake, uh, Ike Barinholtz's episode was kind of like a action movie. Like it was like, he was in fast and the furious the way it was like shot. And then the other one was like more of like a French art film. And they do like all the different based on how the character is in the show. But I uh, know mm. it's, it's clever to do things like that. But those shows that are, you know, on every week, like, Grey's Anatomy is going to look the same no matter who, you know, no matter when you tune in. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, so for you, because obviously filmmaking is different nowadays, obviously the, what goes into it, I think is like the X, Y, Z of it. It's the same. Maybe the, obviously the equipment, things like that are, are different, but like, yeah. what does it take to get to that next level? Cause obviously your goal and you want to do it way before 50. And I think you will is to, you know, be a cinematographer on like a major film like it, but it seems like it's the, the gap is so much, I don't know, maybe it was always the same way, but do you feel like it's like, what's the steps to get there? I don't know. I don't know. I, yeah. Well, I don't know. I feel like I, I, I think I definitely have friends who will, who will maybe get there before I do because they've, played by the rules a bit better than I have, you know, like, it's just, I don't know. Like, but it's just like, that goes back to like who I was in, in high school. Like I, I was never the person who's like, give me a homework assignment. I was like, like doing that, I'm going to do something else. Like I, I just, I've always wanted to do it my way for better, for worse. And so, you know, working on a, on a, I, I really want to shoot a James Bond movie. That's my goal for sure. Nice. Like, you know, like, I want to do a James Bond movie. And if I can't shoot a James Bond movie, I'm going to do something that looks and feels like a James Bond movie. Um, like I just directed a, a commercial for a hotel in Dallas 
And my pitch was like, we're going to do a hotel commercial, but it's also a James Bond movie. Like, that's what we're going to do. We're going to make it really sexy and fun and cool. And they were like, great. We love it. Um, that's cool. How'd but, that go? Was it like a local, like a Marriott or? Uh, I will let, stay tuned. I'll tell you more about it when we get, when we get closer cool. to. That's awesome. Yeah. But, but it's a big international brand. And, um, and it's a new, a new project that they're developing and we got to do all of the new branding for this new project. Sweet. So, was that, would you say to date, that's like your biggest direct? Was very, yes. It's cool. the biggest directing awesome. had for sure, but I directed it and DP'd it. Um, oh, nice. So, oh, it was so much fun, man. We just had a great time. But what I'm focused on in terms of feature films now is just, working with people that make me happy and um, you know, who are, who are really interested in, in collaborating. Um, so that's going to be smaller films. So uh, we're just wrapping up a beautiful feature film called good, bad things directed by Shane Stanger. And uh, we're finishing up color. Like today we were working on the color correction. Um, this thing is going to be huge. People are going to flip for this movie. Cool. And so I want to do, I want to do this again. Like the, the whole experience that we had in good, bad things. I want to do that again. So I think that that's a, a more enjoyable experience than you would have on a $100 million movie. Um, oh, I bet. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's just, you're, we're with a more tight knit group of people and you know, everyone's heard, you know, everyone has a say in, at like an artist level, not like at a studio level where like the studio has the say, you know, that, that feels much more like a nine to five. Whereas a film like good, bad things is like, let's all care a lot about this thing and put our hearts into it. And then, you know, put this work of love out into the world to share with people. So by far that was the best experience I've ever had on a feature film. And so I just want to do that again. That's awesome. And like um, yeah. festivals, things like that. So, so, but still, even with that, that's how you can get noticed too, because that's how they, I don't know if it's like the studios or producers, they go to, I'm sure all the comic con, not the comic cons, but the, but the film festivals and they're like, Hey, that guy has an eye. It looks good. It's the way it's shot. And then, cause there has to well, be a way wanna... for those people to get to the next level. Like there has to be, but I just don't know. Like I've talked to people that are directors, but they get told whenever they would go in like Griffin first, his dad was Steven first. You ever see animal house? His dad was flounder and mm-hmm. animal house. So, okay. uh, so yeah. So Griffin like grew up sort of in the industry. Like he was a kid on set. Like when his dad was on, uh, on not saying almost fire, but saying elsewhere, like Denzel. And, uh, so he was just saying like, man, I always wanted to be a director. So he was like acting and then he get people be like, Hey, do you want to direct? You can direct this horror movie for the sci-fi channel. So he did like five or six of those. This is awesome. Yeah. But then he's like, no, I can't even get, I go for like a drama and they're like, yeah, but you did this. And it's like, I don't know. Who, do, do people do that? I don't think I've ever watched a movie in IMDb. Like before I watch it, put on, like look at IMDb and be like, let's see what the director did before this. And it's like, Oh, he did like sorority massacre seven. Oh, I can't watch this, but I guess the studios do that for some dumb reason. But like, just because you make something that might look great, just because it's a certain genre or people are like certain people are in it. But I think that's the thing that it's still a hard thing to break up to the next level. But I love that you have that passion like that. Like, 
you'll get there in your own way. No, you're here, but I'm saying like you're doing, you're happy while you're working. It's not nine to five. You're not staring at the clock, you know? Like, yeah, it's just, you know, like someone, uh, Robert Altman went and talked to the AFI, um, you know, towards the end of his career. And they were asking him about the films of his that worked versus the ones that didn't work, like his successes versus his failures. And he's like, I've only ever had successes. Like I've only ever, you know, he's like, I don't, your, your metric for my films is that's you. That's your interpretation of what I do. It's like, yeah. as far as I'm concerned, like, I've only ever been working and I've only ever been having a great time doing it. Um, and it's just a better way to live um, because you can sit and you could just be obsessed with, getting to a certain point, but I I deeply feel that if you're exclusively obsessed with sort of getting to some, you know, subjective point in your career, if it's like a monetary value thing, like a budget, I don't know what it is. Like, what's your goal? Yeah. I don't know if, if you'd be happy in the same way. Like I, I want to be happy today. So what I really hope, you know, like good, bad things for me, the best outcome would be, um, we get accepted into a great festival and I get to go and I get to meet some other filmmakers that are making more films like this. And I get to talk to them about like, well, what are you doing? What are you excited to do next? And this is what we're going to do next. And, and just, you know, meeting other like-minded creators. Um, and then, you know, if there's something for us to work on together, you know, great. But yeah, I don't know. I'm, I mean, Super interested to see how this strike that we're going through finishes out. But I've had a number of people say um, something to the effect of like, oh, this is like kind of came out of nowhere and this happened so fast. I'm like, listen, this did not come out of nowhere. <laughs> this happening since uh, Universal was sold to this like Japanese corporation in the 90s. Like there's a really great book, The Men Who Would Be King, that talks about Spielberg, Katzenberg, and Geffen starting DreamWorks. Okay. And and it really kind of, as they are starting their own studio, it's covering the end of studios as the world had known. It was the end of like the Robert Evans and the studio head. And it's the beginning of now like studios are run solely by corporations. So these aren't filmmakers. These are, you know, guys with masters in business coming in, making the decisions. And so it all started then. So like a conversation about, you know, AI taking jobs, it's like the jobs have already been gone. Like they've already like they've been being paid less because they don't want creative answers. They want the same product they sold last week again. So we don't need some crazy, weird, wacky idea because it's not safe. And if I take a risk and it fails, I lose my job. My share price goes down. And I don't want that. I want the boat. I want the house in France. I want my share. (laughs) So let's change it to a subscription model that only benefits shareholders and upper management and CEOs. It doesn't benefit subscription based models do not benefit artists at all because you have no way to directly correlate the success of your project to the money that it made for the company. The company is just trying to toe the line, but like with an ad model, you know, Seinfeld knows how good Seinfeld's doing because advertisers are willing to pay X to advertise during Seinfeld. So it's like the show's doing well, Friends is doing well, like that you can understand that. 
But when people are just paying the subscription every month, these companies don't really care how good the product is. They just want a product to toe the line. The dude who made Squid Games totally got like hosed on his deal. Like he didn't get any residuals. He didn't get any bonus. Netflix paid him a flat fee. And now there's some reporting that that move, that show made like there, I don't know again, like how they figure out how much it made is weird. It's like in additional subscriptions, I guess, but it kind of made $900 million for Netflix. So it's their most profitable franchise to date. And none of that movie went to the guy who created the show. That's insane. So, so it's just, it's like, this has all been happening. And now AI is kind of the next big thing where it's the studios are going like, well, great. Cause AI can't create anything new. That's not how it works. Yeah. AI is like, it's your Google assistant. And so it takes all available information or whatever the AI coder tells it to take from, okay, pull from this, pull from this, pull from this. And then the AI goes, okay, great. I'm going to pull from this to answer whatever questions you have. So when you give it a prompt, like, Hey, make me a movie like this. It's just going to regurgitate what it can find on the internet. So studio heads are going like, well, great. That's all we want. We <laughs> want to regurgitate what we know works. So, Hey, do what worked last week, but spin it a little bit. So I think that like AI is great for these subscription based models. And, you know, it's, there's no winning that battle. So like I, this is why like I don't you talk about like moving on and like doing the it's like that whole the whole world's it that whole thing is so different that I'm scared I would get to a place where, you know, it's like if I am DPing some big movie, you listen to like the the DPs uh, that I love and they talk about working on these big projects. You talk um I forgot what's his name who shot the solo, the Han Solo movie, and it's like it's really scary to get to a big studio place like that. You want to take a risk as a cinematographer. And then you've got the studio head coming down going like, eh, it's too dark. You know, like we don't like the way that this looks. And this just doesn't sound like fun. What sounds like way more fun is making, using the democratization of technology, using um, digital cameras economically, like what I did on Good Bad Things, and working with young artists who want to take risks. And so you spend a little bit of money and you take a lot of risk and you do something original and you're trying to do things that break the system, that break the status quo that you just don't see. Because I think people are really hungry for original content, for original IP and things that go outside the norm. Barbie's doing really well this weekend and that's a really spin on the property. Oppenheimer is doing double what they thought it was going to do. And every showtime in LA that is on 70 millimeter film is like sold out and it's a heady it's it's not a marvel movie you know it's it's non-stop dialogue for three hours talking about physics and science and it's sold out so you know it's like yeah i i i don't know i just i really want to keep making small films that um you know give us the opportunity to experiment and try something different and reach people in a way that we used to, you know, like I want to affect people viscerally the way that like taxi driver affected me or clockwork orange affected me the way I saw it. And you just don't see films like that getting made very often anymore. Yeah. Cause nobody wants to, like you said, take the risk at all. They don't want to. And even though it's like, they would probably still be fine because they have 90% of all their other movies are 
a reprint or another Marvel movie that they know is going to make X amount of dollars, then you could make those risks. Like those studios in the eighties, like Canon film group, they would have, they would do like the cookie cutter action movie, which I still love watching like the death wish films with aging Charles Bronson or any, like the Chuck Norris movies, they would make the money on that. And then they would like shoot these ran out of nowhere. They would have like runaway train, like an Oscar movie. Mm with like Eric Roberts mm. and John Voight. And then they would have like bar fly, a really young Mickey Rourke in a movie. And it like was like a great film. And then they have like all the schlock that they throw out, but you have like that, right. uh, that they like happy, like pie chart. 90% is going to be like, you know, it's going to do what you want it to do. And then 10% like, Hey, try something new. But no. So when it comes to the strike right now, like you guys are a different union, right? It's totally separate. Well, yeah, we had our strike earlier, and <laughs> um, <laughs> everyone in my union voted no against the deal. So by popular vote, the cinematographers, the, the camera guild, local 600, IATSE 600, voted no, we don't like the deal, and our leadership said we cannot in good faith proceed with a no vote because we already kind of told them we would take the deal. And we were like, well, why did we even vote then dude? Yeah. Like what? It was so wild. So yeah, I mean, it's just, it's just so like, and, and uh, you know, the camera union, I can't speak for 728, which is the electricians or 80, which is the grips. They don't help you get work. Uh, really? So no, it's a really interesting situation where it's just a permission structure where you can't work on the good projects unless you're in, but also you can't get in unless you work on the really good projects. So you're like, catch 22, what am I supposed to do here? So, you know, my own pathway into the union is a story for another episode, another day, but you know, it's like to say I'm disenfranchised would be accurate. You know, it's like, it's, it's never directly helped me. I've been on the benefiting side where being in the union has been, you know, I've worked like a 20 hour day and I got a sweet paycheck. And then I was like, great. Um, but also if you're working on a great project with a great director and a producer, who's a, a solid human being, you know, I have made not a lot of money, but I have been cared for deeply. You know, like I've been a part of a family where it's like, we all are working really, really hard. We're not making a lot of money but we're eating well and we're sleeping well and it's safe. So, you know, it's like you can find the unions are great to protect the people who work on these big studio projects where it is like a nine to five job. Um, but they're just going to keep pushing to lower their costs to, you know, to profit more. And that's only going to continue, you know, like there's no, there's no interest in, you know, art for art's sake. Um, that's not really there. I, you know, I don't, I don't know. It's, it's just, I think you just got to like, just be happy doing what you're doing. Um, don't waste your time pining for what could be, you know, like there's something else. And if you, if you're super hungry to play the game, then, then yeah, play the game and have fun. And, and there's, beautiful, beautiful work being done by my peers, you know, on some of those big projects, you know, it's like the pinnacle of technical achievement. A lot of these shows, like the new Indiana Jones, I'm like, technically the most perfect looking film, not my favorite movie, 
but like yeah. technically I'm watching like this is wild like it's just so stunning like it's just so stunningly beautiful um so it's like yeah there's great craftsmanship done there but like I just you know is it fulfilling yeah I mean I don't know I don't know I don't know it's all about <laughs> it's not, yeah whatever it's like whatever works for you know Nathan or whatever works for anyone like when it comes to life because you're right like you want to be happy today it's not like you're gonna be like hey you know what in 10 yeah. 15 years I'm gonna be I'm gonna be miserable for 10 to 15 years but in 15 years it's gonna be great but in a year you could walk cross street and hit by a car so it's like there's so many that's like exactly right. yeah that's exactly right man i mean it's just yeah. uh, enjoy it a couple of like family friends that we've had that have passed away in the last couple of years that have been really unexpected has made me think about this even more we're going like i want to love what i'm doing right now because yeah. nothing is certain in this life nothing is certain no. And it's like, oh my goodness, like I would rather go and just, you know, I would, it's just, I got a roof over my head. I'm eating well. I've got, I love my car, you know, like I love my hobbies. <laughs> you know, it's like life is good. You know, like I like, what more do you want? You know, it's like, yeah. we're super blessed to live in America. I feel that way. It's just, you know, I just feel so lucky. So, so, so lucky. I just, you know, like I live, I live near the beach in Los Angeles. It's like, there what more go. do you want, man? You know, I know. Just, so, <laughs> yeah. So, so we're like right at an hour, and this has been great. Just a few more things, just to like circle back. Yeah. You're talking about the AI, and it's so funny. And I know that yeah. like people that listen to this are obviously people that like movies and TV and stuff. But it's so funny that that the, the people out there that are like that make fun of Hollywood, make fun of actors, or like people that work in film. Uh, but it's so it is so true that trends and things look to hollywood like you'll see something in a movie or a tv show and then like a month later it might be like the next like style trend or something and it's so silly mm -hmm. like uh barry livingston he was one of the my three he was on my three sons character actor in yeah. a million things he's been acting since like the 60s he said something that was so profound online and he was talking about like you think ai is just about actors if it works here then all other jobs that are able to use it are going to use it. And I'm like, you know what? That's so true. Like, cause that's the way people look. And I, and it's so true when it comes to AI, when you mess around with it, because when it first came out, like I messed around with it and it was funny. I, I, cause I've been jonesing for a Friday the 13th part 13, like it has to be made. Like they're finally, hopefully settling this shit between those two guys, uh, Victor Miller and uh, that other guy that's such a douche. But anyway, like they finally figured it out like, Hey, you own Jason Voorhees. I own the origin story. So that's why some prequels coming out on Peacock and then hopefully eventually a 13th movie. But I always had an idea of all of the survivors getting together and somehow where they're at Crystal Lake, Jason comes back. So I had it write like a script and it was really bad. But the, yeah. the worst part was of it was at the very end and I don't know what, I guess it takes it from like cartoons almost, but it was like, and then what the hell did it say? It said, Jason looks at the camera, pulls up his mask and winks. And I'm like, what the fuck? Like, what is this? Like an end of like a, not like Scooby-Doo, but like Jesus Christ. But it's funny, like that silly stuff. But what the studios think is they'll take that and be like, oh, sure. well, we know he doesn't wink. We'll make it so he doesn't wink. And then like that, that's their idea of taking some regurgitated thing and then just 
putting something, having somebody punch it up. Like really just have punch up writers, no original ideas. Yeah. I mean, it's going to happen. It's just, we can, we can, we can argue and fight, but like already they signed SAG signed like 43 petitions for films to work during the strike. I saw that. So someone, so they bought people off, you know, it's like people got like, that's all it is. It's just like, Oh, we feel very strongly about the cause and blah, blah, blah. It's just like any actor working on any of those films is, is a yeah. sellout. Like, yeah, they all took the paycheck, all took the deal. They're like, well, because the people who have the capability of bypassing a strike like this are screwing over the hundreds of thousands of people who don't have the opportunity to work on projects that big. So you've just completely nullified the whole situation. The studios have already won. So regardless of whatever the outcome is for any of this, you know, for any union, for any guild, it's like the writing's on the wall. Like it's it's over. Like it's it's over. So stop fighting it and just embrace doing your own thing. The smartest people in the world right now are the YouTube creators, the King Batches and the Adam W's and the Hannah Stockings of the world. Like people who have their own brand. And they can do their own thing on YouTube. And like, like that's it. Like you have to be your own creator and you've got to be able to use the technology. So like I used AI on good, bad things. I used autofocus. Autofocus is AI. You know, it's using oh, algorithms yeah. Oh, yeah. and LiDAR technology go like, you know, and it's making a creative choice about where is the focus at. That's artificial intelligence. <laughs> and I did that so that I could have no, like the camera crew was like just me. It's like, we don't have a lot of a budget. And I was like, well, great. Like, let's just use technology to our advantage and, and not have a huge crew. And then we can stay on budget. So it's like, yeah. go and tell stories. You know, it's like, that's what's happening. Don't get into the film business to get rich. You're a storyteller to be a storyteller. You're a storyteller to, to discuss and investigate the human condition. You know, like, you know, Nolan wrote, Nolan didn't write Oppenheimer to get rich. Nolan investigated a man who forever permanently changed the world that we knew. Yeah. That's what that film was about, you know? And like, he's a conflicted character. Um, and it was a conflicted choice to, to participate in it. You know, it, the whole thing is fascinating. That's what art is, man. It's like, you know, we have to keep investigating. It's so wild. And I feel like it's unique to cinema. Cinema is beautiful in that it's the culmination of every art form ever invented. Right. Like we take painting and photography and music and performance, you know, acting, and we've just meshed them all together. And we put a, a motion picture camera now and then all these other mediums get squeezed through a motion picture camera. And now you have a new art form. But for all of those former art, it's like, you know, no one got like rich and famous like Monet was not like a rich and famous painter. You know, it's just like, so like Degas wasn't like a gazillionaire, you know, he didn't, Degas did not have a private jet, you know, like these (laughs) artists, like back in the day, like so many of them, um, you know, would die with no one knowing who they were and they would become famous for their work long after they were gone. But now we're such a fame conscious society. It's this very American, I feel like it's very American. It's very capitalist. You know, we, we pursue art as a means to fame. And if that's your goal, it's just like, I don't know. I mean, like you can play that game and the Kardashians, the Kardashians do it really, really well. They do. They, they stopped their show and then they went on to 
another network so. and got like paid whatever. But I think the one thing to to not talk too much about the the AI and the strike, but I think the one thing that was like eye opening for people was like I've interviewed actors and they talk about like I helped an actor write a book, the guy uh, Larry Hankin. And he would talk about like, Hey, you know what? It's great when I get my residual checks because that helps pay rent. And like he has 200 plus credits for, you know, from like the seventies, eighties and nineties. And so like, that's great. But it's, I, I saw a thing with Mandy Moore showing a residual check. That was eight cents for, uh, for this yeah. is us. And I'm like, Oh my God, that's crazy. Like it's crazy. <laughs> It's crazy. It's crazy that that CEOs are making three hundred million dollars, oh. you know, oh, a year yeah. or something. Like Any company, just, like you, should not make four hundred times what the lowest paid employee makes. Like, it, it's too much money. Like, there, I know, I know, like Bernie Sanders would love what we're talking about right now, but it's it's true. Like, there shouldn't be that much money to like one person. I don't know. <sighs> yeah. So. All of that to say, we could either yes. sit around just like complain, 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 uh, or we could like get to work. And so, you know, and this is I'm speaking to myself right now, um, but you know, I'm writing a feature film um, nice. with my partner Matt um, that we did the commercial in Dallas together. And you know, it's just it the technology exists. Like you don't, you know, shooting on digital is super cheap. And LED technology for lighting doesn't use doesn't require a lot of power, and we've got plenty of like super talented um, uh, friends who are actors. And then you can go to places in the world where you show up and you tell them that you're making a movie, and people support you. Where it's it's not like there's there tends to be a thing in Los Angeles where people find out that you're making a movie and they just like oh well I'm going to make your life miserable until you pay me. But oh. you go to some place <laughs> in the world. Yeah. And uh, like I was shooting up in Portland, Oregon and we're shooting downtown Portland late at night and max, you know, the little subway train. Yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. It's coming. We're filming in the middle of the road and these cops were walking. I was like, ah, oh, man, we're going to get shut down because we're filming in the middle of the street. And these cops walk up to us and they go, you guys making a movie? We're like, yeah. And they go, do you want us to hold the train for you so you can finish filming your movie? Wow. Like, what? Nice. So it's like, so combine all that stuff, combine the passion, the love, the new technology and, you know, people who just like love, it's like, go and go tell stories, you know, it's like, and then release it on YouTube, you know, and yeah. it'll get seen. If it's good, it'll get seen and go to film festivals. It'll get seen. And if people like it, more people will see it. And I, that's, that's what just really excites me. I just, I'm, I put my energy into it. I put my heart into it. And if we just keep focusing on doing things that we think will excite audiences and inspire people to live healthier, better lives um, and, and ask questions, it's like, I mean, great, great. That's what it's all about. Nathan, last question I before I let you go. I always like asking people this. So when you're like, right. w- like when you're working on sets, was there any mementos that you kept or did Cameron have any good, like, uh, goodies that he gave like at the end of the filming uh, uh. did you see um, uh ghosted with anna de Armas? yeah 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 you remember the bus sequence i have a bus down backwards down a hill anyway this is from that bus I took really this. that's cool and then you probably recognize this what's that so an avatar 
in Avatar, oh, yeah, it's yeah, the yeah. worst. Right. And so uh, Cameron, he sent us this as this is one of the Christmas gifts. So it's a Christmas ornament wood sprite. But then my favorite memento from Avatar here. Hold on. Stay right there. Hold on. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so these these are so funny. But um, when we were working on Avatar, uh, Jim would send us uh, <laughs> Jim would send us family Christmas cards. Really? That's, that's hilarious. <laughs> it's so beautiful. Yeah. It's so cool. So yeah. So I, we got like. That's cool. James man. Cameron card. So just, you know, again, like you were working on the biggest movie, but like amazing people like John Landau is like everyone's dad. Like he's so cool. Um, so yes, I have, well, actually I have some more. Uh, one of my favorite things to save. I love saving um, slates. Oh, nice. So, yeah, so like this is from, so this is actually the slate. Oh, wow, I can't believe I have this, but this is from Ghosted. Oh, that's amazing, dude. And then this was when we did Mortal Kombat. That's awesome. And then Water Unit. <laughs> Avatar sequels. Um, and then this one's pretty wild. Oh my God, dude. That's really cool. So, yeah. Some really, really cool. And then this is a, a movie I shot for the Lifetime Network. A Christmas Harmony. Nice. Lifetime Vancouver? The other Vancouver? Is that where you went? Lifetime. No, we shot that in Crested Butte, Colorado. Um, oh, okay. But I know. The, I know. Hallmark has like a little headquarters. Uh, all the Vancouver people I've interviewed that like moved back up there, uh, that were in Hollywood for like a little bit, like that's like their bread and butter. Like those Hallmark uh, movies or Lifetime. It's a good place to yeah. film. That's cool. I gotta say, like every time I ask that question, not saying I've, not saying the actors don't have good stuff. Like John Carpenter gave this guy, Peter Jason, he's a great character actor, bunch of, he has like the best gifts, like the end of films, usually like leather jackets. Uh, oh, that's cool. But now there's one guy who's a cinema, uh, Steven poster cinematographer. Okay. So his thing was, uh, he, he lived in John Carpenter's house. Like he bought John, John Carpenter's house that Carpenter owned when he wrote the, when he directed the fog. So like the jacuzzi scene, uh, with Adrian Barbeau is like in that house oh, in the cool. movie. So that's he really goes, cool. Doug, you want to see something really cool? And I go, yeah. Cause he worked on Blade Runner and he like runs over and he picks something up and it, it was like be, in a set piece. I forgot what scene it was. I think it's the first time when Harrison Ford meets, uh, Sean Young, like the first time he meets her. And in the back, there's yeah. just like this random, like these random like metal pieces on the wall and he holds it up. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, Oh my god, it's so cool! He's like, "Yeah, they said we could take what we want at the end." So yeah, I grab that. I go, "What do you do with it?" And he goes, "I use the doorstop." Yeah, <laughs> yeah, no, but it's it's like anytime I love tchotchkes. I love little things. Oh, like dude, ones that have stories. Like uh, this guy Ron Schmidt, last one. But Ron Schmidt, he worked on the Shield, and he took when Michael Chiklis. Like, I don't know what he folds up. I think he puts his number on, but he th makes it into mm -hmm. a paper airplane. And he throws like his card, like, and he goes, oh, I picked it up and took it. And I have it on my thing. I'm like, that's like so cool. So cool. 
to somebody else's just trash that would have got picked up and thrown in the garbage, but it has like a memory. Yeah. If when, when you're out here, if you ever come to LA, there's a fun thing that we can do. We can, we can call and get a drive on, um, to the universal studios prop house. And so you go there and it's where you would actually go to go and like rent props, but they have in a case, they have like some famous props that are kind of like, meh. So like they have the mold for the fertility idol from Raiders of the Lost Ark. Really? So like, like the, the idol that from the very first, like that was cast, like the mold is in there. And then they have like props from Jurassic Park and they have the, um, the, the wooden ball from Minority Report that says John Anderton on it that rolls down the thing. Yeah. Like that little wooden ball is like in there. It's pretty cool. Pretty cool stuff. Um, yeah. I, I love it, man. Yeah. It's just, it's, it never gets old. It never gets old. It's always awesome. And slates um, are cool. I've never yeah. seen anybody with slates. Whenever I ask that, nobody's <laughs> ever had slates. That's pretty cool. Yeah. It's like for the, and my favorite thing, what I like to do at the end of the film, I have everyone autographed the back too. That's so awesome. this is for Mortal Kombat. So this is everyone I could get on my crew. Um, because that's the other thing too, is it's like, you know, you always think like, well, you know, actors are going to give autographs, but it's like, yeah, you know, actors are cool. But like when I meet the craftspeople who worked on these great projects, when we were doing the commercial in Dallas, I was like, well, I'm going to hire the best there is. My audio mixer Stacy Brownrig, he was the audio mixer for Office Space and oh, like cool. Idiocracy. And I was like, oh my God, dude. I'm like, you're a legend. You're so you know, fantastic. <laughs> it's just so cool. You just like, you meet these people and, um, and they're the ones that like, they're the, the magic makers. You know, it's like, you've got the, the, the ideators, the James Camerons of the world. And those people are, they are who they are. Like we know who these people are, yeah. but then there's the thousands of craftspeople yeah. Um, Nia Nia Koo, another gaffer. I'm probably maybe been butchering his name. I did this um, fashion commercial, and I got to hire him to be my gaffer. He was the gaffer for a badass film called Bone Tomahawk. Have oh, you yeah, seen yeah, Bone yeah. Tomahawk? Kurt, Kurt Russell. Yeah. yeah. Man. And so it was like, and again, it's like a smaller, lesser known film, but like I'm a huge fan. Um, and then he also he did Come On, Come On. Did you see that movie? No, no, no. Um, right come there. on, come on is so beautiful and makes me cry. Um, with um, oh, with what's his name? Oh my goodness. Um, with um, with Walk the Line with Napoleon, uh, that actor. Um, John Heater. No, 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 no. It's super famous. The bad guy from Gladiator. Um, why am I totally? Oh, Joaquin Phoenix. Joaquin Phoenix. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Joaquin Phoenix. Come on, come on. Okay. And so Nia, Nia Gaff, come on, come on. And so again, it's like smaller, lesser known film, but I'm yeah. like, dude, you're, oh my God. And you meet these people. I'm like, and that's when I get starstruck. You meet the crafts people, <laughs> the women who work. And so I have a autograph. If I ever have a chance to work with them, I have a autograph the slate. Cause that's like, awesome. to me, like those, those are the heroes, man. It's like, you guys made, I, I know, I know what it takes to work on these projects. And like, you guys did it. And it's just so beautiful, such beautiful work. I, so. I love that. Whenever I talk, I remember like one of the first interviews I did, it was a special effects guy, Tim Lawrence worked on like mm. every movie. I love Beetlejuice, like a million things. And I, he worked on Howard the Duck and that's one of my favorite movies. And he had these really cool stories about, and he sent me after we were done, 
he sent me like a an email with like 50 like attachment 50 photos behind the scenes like he did that whole opening sequence when howard's like flying through the walls and yeah. he did like the girl duck, like the naked nude girl duck in the bathtub, the vampire duck. And he did all those things. And to me, I'm like, God, it's like, I don't know. It's like the coolest thing. Like, I agree with you. Like, obviously, if I could meet James Cameron, it'd be awesome. But to like, just talk the character actors I've talked to. I'm like, I've seen you in so much. Like, Tom Cruise yeah. is cool. But dude, yeah. Stuart Penkin, you're like the biggest vicious asshole boss and like, film history yeah. and it's like yeah. it, it's neat because i think they appreciate that a lot too because I, I feel like yeah. they have that same thing like maybe they're not everyone but in their minds maybe like a lesser known film but they like uh it's fun man and it's cool that you do that because those people it, it means a lot to you but i'm sure to them it means a lot as well thanks nathan super pleasure thank you so much doug Oh, no problem. Thank you, dude. We'll keep in touch for sure. We always go out there. So, yeah, I'll definitely keep in touch with you. The James Cameron family Christmas card. Nathan gets that every year, which is pretty neat. But, man, how wild is that? Just the that he, him and his buddies, young, go see Blair Witch in the movie theater. And then 17 years later, he's doing the camera testing for the direct sequel to it. And then also the same connection when it comes to avatar, like after he worked on the first one, he saw it in a Portland movie theater, flew back, visited some family. And then his name is in the credits, uh, for way of water, which is really cool. And man, some of the best mementos people ever, ever have uh, taken from set. I love the fact that he doesn't go for the, the stars. He gets the autographs on the back of the slates, from all the other people that he worked with on set behind the camera, which I think is really cool and probably means so much to them. So Nathan, thank you. And best luck in the future. I know he talked about at the end, he was writing a feature, which, uh, man, the guy, such passion, still so young. And it was so crazy to hear him say that people told him, Hey, if you know, when you're 50, you can, you know, work camera on a movie theater, which I think if he wanted to, he could do that. A lot faster than that, but he loves making his independent films and you know being in charge and being able to actually be making the calls while on set. So your homework, Blair Witch 2016. I hope it's good. I love the original. You know, Jamie obviously is a lot older than me, and I hope he's listening to this. He's a lot older than me. So when he saw the original Blair Witch project, he knew that it wasn't real, but as a a little kid at 13 years old, I thought it was real. I saw it that first night and there was all that buzz about it because there was no internet to be like, hey, is this real? And uh, wow, that messed me up for a little bit. Really good movie. So I hope in the direct sequel uh, brings back some of those memories for me. So don't forget to review, rate, share our podcast, follow us on all social media at Sequels Only, and don't forget to check our website, sequelsonly.com. Good night. Good night, guys.